All right, Psalm 47. I have to confess, I had to go and look up which psalm we were on because it had been about a month. I thought it had been three weeks, and then I realized the week that we were out of town, Bob did something, so it had been right out of month. So, Psalm 47, though. Who's in charge of this world? You know, the, the right answer is God. But the answer when we look around us is sometimes we don't know. seems like government maybe, seems like this person, that person, or maybe nobody, just from a human perspective if we look at the world around us. The picture that this psalm paints, though, is of a God who rules not just over those who believe in him, but over every nation of the world. The second thing that I wanted to ask you is, what are qualities that you admire people for or show them respect for or even praise them for? What are some of those things that come to mind? Okay, work hard. What else? Honest? Compassion? Sure. Anything else? Wisdom. Okay. These are all some of the different qualities that, to a certain extent, I think that we would see in God. But in the first four verses, we're going to see an admonition to rejoice in praise to God. And there are several reasons that are given, and at first glance it looks like three different reasons, but they all sort of build on each other, and I think they're kind of one reason. So look at verse 1. Oh, clap your hands, all peoples. Shout to God with the voice of joy. So that verse ought to convict us because we're Baptists. We don't clap our hands, so we probably should start doing that. What, what is it expressing when it says, clap your hands, all you people? Joy. Joy. Shout to God with the voice of joy. I think one of the challenges for a church like ours that's been established for a long time with the heritage that we have of having been in the faith for a number of years, for many of us, is that it's easy to fall into the pattern of, in the context of the church service or in the course of the week, we tend to lack a measure of enthusiasm or joy in our praise to God. And sometimes, you know, some people say that the reason for that is what we are in the context of the church service singing. And I suppose there's some truth of that on both sides. If you're singing a song from long ago or from recently that has little to no content to it, it can be hard to be enthusiastic because you're not really saying any truths that can stir your soul as you praise God. But more often than not, it's not the song that is to blame. It's not, you know, any of the other things that might come up when we evaluate a typical church service. It's not whoever is leading the music. It's not the song. It's not the orchestration, whether that be piano or any other instruments that are accompanying it. It comes down to the attitude of our hearts and whether we are rejoicing in God. Not just 
rejoicing in God. And, and again, it doesn't have to be like a loud, bombastic, in-your-face kind of thing. But when it says, shout to God with a voice of joy, there's a measure of enthusiasm and intensity and sort of an overflowing praise that sometimes we lack. Hallelujah. <laughs> Good. So, think about it this way. What does it say in the book of Colossians? Speaking to one another with psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, making melody in your hearts to the Lord. And then there's this idea that it spills over into thankfulness to God. So if we lack joy, thankfulness, praise to God, what's one of the things that may be lacking in our daily lives? Potentially, our minds are not saturated with God's Word to the extent that it spills out in praise to God. Think about if you go to wash your car. You go to wash your car, and you've got a dry sponge, how effective is it? It's not very effective. Leave scratches all over it, you know. But aside from that, the, the, the picture is like this. It's like God's Word is the bucket of water. You're the sponge. You're soaking in it. And as you go about the task that you're supposed to be doing, God's Word is sort of dripping off of you. That may not be a, the super attractive picture to all of you, but, I mean, that I think illustrates what we see here. There is a recognition of who God is. We're going to get into the reasons in 2 through 4 that spills out into praise to God. So now he gives the reasons. For the Lord Most High is to be feared, a great king over all the earth. So what's his first reason we ought to praise God? Because God is exalted. He's a great king over all the earth. He is the Lord Most High. Think about the story of Jonah. The people, the sailors that were on the boat with Jonah were afraid. And when they talked to Jonah about their fear that they were going to drown and all those sorts of things, I think their fear was made worse because they had this concept that you could maybe just row out of the wrath of the particular God because he was sort of anchored to a particular spot in the ocean or on the land or, or that sort of thing. The pagan peoples who attacked the Israelites, same sort of idea. We go up in the, the hills or we go down in the valleys. God can help them there. God can't help them here. But Jonah's testimony and the testimony of this psalm is this. God is not the God of a specific geographical location. God is God above all. Sometimes people have overemphasized this truth about God and denied the possibility of knowing Him. But I think today, the danger for us is generally not that we overemphasize that God is exalted. We tend to overemphasize the idea that God is accessible. In other words, there has been a trend for a while now to view God as my buddy, my friend, you know, it was popular for a while to refer to God, Jesus, as the man upstairs. I jokingly said that when I was a seminary student, I rented the upstairs of a house, and um, the lady who was the secretary for the seminary lived in the first level of the house, and I made some offhand comment one time that I was the man upstairs. She <laughs> appreciate that. 
But that's the way that our culture tends to think of God. A grandfatherly figure, a buddy figure, somebody that you can hang out with, that we've lost a sense of reverence for God as being a God who's exalted. God is a God who does not just rule over his people, as we'll see later, but he's a great king over all the earth. You can't outrun God. You can't thwart God. Think about the story of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar found that as the ruler of the greatest nation on earth in his day, God could take his sanity away from him, make him crawl on all floors like a beast, and humble him until he recognized that there is one true God, and it wasn't him. The next reason, which is related to the one before it, because God is a great king over all the earth, he subdues peoples under us and nations under our feet. This is addressed to Israel, so it's not a command for the United States to go conquer other nations. So let's keep it in context. But what did this look like for the people of Israel? Think about what we've been talking about in Genesis. Abraham is sent into the land of Canaan, clearly full of people who are already living there. And God said, this is going to be yours and your descendants, and they're going to be innumerable. And the question had to have crossed his mind, what about all the people who are already here? The answer is in verse 3. God subdued people under them and nations under their feet. Uh, the Canaanites were defeated. In many cases, they were supposed to be wiped out, but at the very least, they were defeated by the Israelites, and God was the one who gave them the victory. Think about their travels through the wilderness. When they followed God and they had God's blessing, they had victory over their enemies. When they went their own way and rejected God, God allowed them to be defeated by their enemies. This happened time and again in the history of the Israelites. Verse 4 builds on the first two. God is a great king who subdues peoples under us and who chooses our inheritance for us, the glory of Jacob, whom he loves. Not only does God rule over all the earth, not only did God give the Israelites victory, but God also gave them an inheritance. That inheritance was the land of Canaan, later the land of Israel, when they had taken possession of it. And that was their inheritance. That was their possession. There's a couple of things that we have to keep in mind connected with that. One is, there's a tendency in our day to want to rewrite the promises of God in a way that robs the people of Israel of the force of something like verse 4. I'm not arguing for um, the Zionist-type idea that the Israelites have a present right to kick everybody out of the land of Israel and possess the entire territory ruled by Solomon at the present time. But there is a sense in which they have never fully claimed the entirety of the territory that God appointed for them, and which if we say, well, they missed their chance because they messed up so many times, we're not really calling into question Israel's character. We're calling into question God's character because God's the one who made the promise to them. And so I think there is evidence in the Old Testament and in the New that when taken together, together gives us this picture that the nation of Israel is going to take their rightful place ruling and receiving the possession that God had promised to them. So when we see verse 4, we should not think Ephesians 2 or Ephesians 1 that the Spirit is the down payment of our inheritance. 
The two things are related in this sense. The same God who promised an inheritance to the Israelites promises an inheritance to us. The way that that inheritance comes to us is through Jesus Christ who is an Israelite and the fact that we have been grafted into God's blessing because of their disobedience. But the promise to have the land as an inheritance was specifically for the people of Israel and if we share in that promise, it is only in a secondary sense or, 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 or as being added on, not as being the original recipients of that promise. So, why should we joyously praise God? Because He is an exalted King to be feared, because He defeats the enemies of His people, because He sets apart an inheritance for His people. And then in the second part, verses 5 through 9, we have less a description of what God does and more a description of the fact that He just is and is reigning. Verse 5, God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Does that uh, stir your mind to remember any other passages? Yeah, 1 Thessalonians 4 not because they're necessarily referring to the same event, but because there is this sense of an announcement of who God is and what He's doing on behalf of His people, right? We're going to see that developed as we go through the rest of the passage. Some people have seen in this uh, that the people would have sort of enacted a sort of Jesus is King ceremony, not Jesus is King, but God is King ceremony in connection with the temple. Um, that's probably reading more into the text than is warranted or borrowing from more pagan rituals and processions and things. But there is a sense in which we do have to ask ourselves, are the things that we see in these verses present or are they future? So let's read through the passage and then we'll, we'll go through each verse. God has ascended with a shout, the Lord with the sound of a trumpet. Sing praises to God, sing praises Sing praises to our King, sing praises, for God is the King of all the earth. Sing praises with a skillful psalm. God reigns over the nations, God sits on His holy throne. The princes of the people have assembled themselves, and then the Nazbe inserts, as the people of the God of Abraham. For the shields of the earth belong to God, He is highly exalted. We read that, and we get a little bit of a sense that it's not true today, or at least that it's not widely recognized today. We get a sense that perhaps this psalm looks forward to what we see, for example, in Philippians 2, that at the name of Jesus every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that He is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Or the sorts of things that we see in Ephesians 1, where there's this sort of unfolding of God's power in Christ, or in 1 Corinthians um, 15, that all things are being put under subjection, under God and under Christ, under the rule of the rightful heir. Psalm 2, God laughs at the nations. He will defeat them. He will put them in subjection under Him. There's a sense in which God presently reigns regardless of whether the world recognizes it. But there's also a sense in which I think this psalm is looking forward to a day 
when God will reign over the nations in sort of the bringing together of all of what he's been doing in his plan throughout the centuries. Uh, we get a glimpse of this perhaps in Revelation 5.9 where it says people from every tribe, tongue, and nation are praising God. But even beyond that, there is a recognition of God's power in some of the events that we see unfold in the book of Revelation that even those who are not willing to acknowledge God as king in obedient service to him are forced to acknowledge his power and his right to reign. Look at the middle part, verse 6 of this section. Sing praises to God, sing praises, sing praises to our king, sing praises. And then I think the main point is at the beginning of verse 7, for God is the king of all the earth. That idea is repeated again. Verse 2, he is a great king over all the earth. Verse 7, God is the king of all the earth. And so that is sort of the thing that is at the core of this sing praises idea that brackets it. Sometimes um, when we look at songs, we get uneasy if they repeat phrases. But if you look at the Psalms, there's a lot of repetition. It says sing praises one, two, three, four, five times in two verses. So I think the problem that we have to recognize with certain songs is not an issue of repetition. It's a question of whether the thing that they are repeating is something that ought to be repeated. Is it an important truth? Is it based closely on scripture? Or is it merely repeating for the sake of emotional effect and when we sing the song, we're not thinking about what the words mean? Sometimes the blame for that is on the way the song is written. Sometimes the blame for that is on whether we're paying attention to what we're singing. And so I, I just want to highlight that because one of the objections that's sometimes made to particular songs is, well, they repeat themselves. Um, in my parents' day, they like to refer to them as the 7-Eleven chorus, seven words repeated 11 times. That's a catchy thing to say, but the Psalms repeat certain phrases because repetition is tied to both memory and, in this case, probably more to emphasis. Because if he just said, sing praises to God, we'd be like, okay, that's probably a good thing to do. But when he says it over and over and over again, we start to think, I should do this. And so I think that's part of what he's trying to bring across with this section. So God has ascended. We sing praises to him as the exalted king. And then it describes his position. God reigns over the nations. God sits on his holy throne. This idea of God reigning over the nations is interesting because... When we read the Old Testament, at first we sort of get the idea that largely God is ruling over the Israelites and maybe not very effectively because they keep not doing what he wants them to do. But the full testimony of Scripture is not just that God rules over the Israelites as his people, but that God rules over the entirety of the world. And then we come to a passage like uh, in the New Testament where it says in 1 Corinthians that Satan is the God of this world and has blinded people's eyes. Or when Jesus is tempted and Satan says, I'm going to show you all the kingdoms of the earth and I'll give them to you. 
We'll say, who's in charge of the world? Is it Satan or is it God? The reality is probably found in the beginning of Job, where we see that Satan has to give account to God and cannot do more than God permits him to do. And so there is a sense in which God, to some extent, has given Satan free reign over the earth. But there is clearly a recognition that God is the one who rules over everything. And so when we have that perspective, God reigns over the nations, God sits on his holy throne. Notice that his throne is holy. I'm sure you're familiar with this passage, but in Isaiah 6, Isaiah's description is this, In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted with the train of his robe filling the temple. Seraphim stood above him, each having six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. One called out to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds trembled at the voice of him who called out while the temple was filling with smoke. Then I said, Woe is me, for I am ruined. I am a man of unclean lips, and I live among a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me with a burning coal in his hand, which he had taken from the altar with tongs. He touched my mouth with it and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your iniquity is taken away, and your sin is forgiven. Then the rest of the chapter goes into God sending out Isaiah to be a prophet. In this passage, when it says that God sits on his holy throne, God's throne is unique in that it is connected with the idea of the temple. It is connected with the idea of God's holiness. So a normal king sits on his throne in his house, in his palace. God sits on his throne in a temple, at least as Isaiah's vision describes. Why? Because God not only reigns, but is also worthy to be worshipped. And there were kings who tried to be worshipped at different points in history, but they were not worthy to be worshipped. And how do we know? Well, in part because they died. Their plans failed. Their kingdoms fell apart. God's holy throne endures, and He is the one that we ought to worship. And when it says that God sits on His holy throne, there's this exuberant praise that is also mixed with the attitude of what it says in the book of Hebrews, that we come before the Lord with reverence because our God is a consuming fire. Just as in the Christian life, our experience is joy mixed with sorrow, so in our approach to God is praise, joy, exultation mixed with reverence and awe and fear. Because God is exalted. And again, there's two senses in which God is holy, right? God is holy because He is above all, and God is holy because he is apart from sin. The apart from sin part, we can sometimes echo in the course of our lives. The above all part, that's part of what makes him God. We can't do that. We're never going to be exalted like that. We're never going to sit on a holy throne as God because we're not holy in that sense. And so again, even as we become like God, there is still a disconnect in which we are not the same as God. We can never equal God. We can never rival God. Verse 9, the princes of the people have assembled themselves as the people of the God of Abraham 
For the shields of the earth belong to God. He is highly exalted. Depending on how you fill in the blank, so to speak, with the relationship between those two phrases, theoretically it could be read, the princes of the people have assembled themselves, comma, the people of the God of Abraham. The Nazbi takes it as the people of the God of Abraham, which gives us the sense as we read it that the peoples of the earth are reckoned or gathered with the people of Israel and they are all together gathered with God. So the way that I would put it is this. Whichever way you take it, it's clearly evident from Scripture that God set apart the nation of Israel because He wanted them to be a light and testimony to the nations around them so that all peoples would gather before God and worship Him. They often failed in that task. We have the privilege and the opportunity to take the gospel not only to people just like us, but to all people, so that, in a sense, where Israel failed, the church will help to carry out God's purpose that the nations would gather in His presence and recognize Him as their rightful ruler. I'm sure that you've probably... Um, I think it's John Piper that said it. He said, missions exist because worship doesn't. Why do we take the gospel? Because there are people who don't yet worship God and He deserves the praise of every living being. So, there is a glimpse in this passage of a day when that is not just an expectation, but a reality. And this is not uncommon in the words of the prophets to see things that are yet future spoken of as like things right there in front of their eyes. along those lines to support the idea that at least in some cases David spoke prophetically and others as well. This one is headed as a psalm of the sons of Korah. Uh, think about what it says in the book of Acts that David foresaw that he would see corruption but Christ did not see corruption in Peter's sermon in I believe Acts 3. So we step away from the psalm. We say what are we supposed to take away from it? I said who rules? And we tentatively say God, but in our hearts sometimes we question it. This psalm says, don't just say it tentatively. Say it confidently, joyously, in praise to God. God reigns. And then with regard to God's exalted position, that ought to inspire us, to motivate us, cause us to sing praises. Sing praises to God repeatedly, according to verse 6. Sing praises to God skillfully, according to verse 7. We cannot exhaust our praise of God no matter how many times we say it. We cannot accurately capture the majesty of God no matter how well we say it. But we ought to strive to do both of those things. Looking for the day when the world around us will recognize what is in a sense already true, that God reigns over all things. But there is coming a day when they will all acknowledge that as well. That ought to bring us great rejoicing. It ought to bring us, to a certain extent as well, great sorrow. Because there are people around us that if Christ returns today to claim His kingdom, 
they're going to be on the wrong side of Christ's army. Those who are defeated, those who are cast into the lake of fire, those who are punished for all eternity. I hope, my prayer is, that that's not any of us in our church. But we know for sure that it's many of the people that we see on a regular basis. So, are we going to, as we praise God, testify of Him to one another that our hearts might be stirred and to those who don't know Him that their hearts might be changed? Let's pray. Lord, we praise You for You are a great King. You are exalted over all things. You are holy. You are one to be feared. You have brought down nations. You have set apart an inheritance for Your people. You will come to be recognized as the ruler over all things, even as You actually are even now. Lord, as these truths sink into our hearts, I pray that they would stir us to live for You, to proclaim You, to be Your people, as You have given us the privilege to be even though we were not of the people of Israel that this psalm originally talked about. I pray these things in Christ's name. Amen.